You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hi friends, Nadia back here for another episode of Tigris and I am really nervous about our episode today because it's one that I I feel like I have this societally induced shame of admitting and that is that I struggle a lot with feeling guilty about reporting my past abusers. So from that one sentence, I'm sure you can probably deduce that we will be talking quite a bit about sexual abuse and sexual assault and reporting and a lot of the emotions that come with it. And this is an episode that I've been wanting to do for quite a while now. It's been something that I've been journaling about and talking about in therapy. And I always do a lot of reflection before I sit down to record these podcast episodes because I do think that these topics are really fragile. And I think that we have to talk about them, but I always want to make sure that I'm doing so from a place of having done reflection before, like publicly spewing random thoughts. We also haven't done a solo episode in a while. A lot of the recent Tigress episodes have been with my sisters, with um, special guests. So um, I've been kind of saving up a lot of different topics in my journal as I've been just trying to find the right vocabulary to express. And, you know, before I decided to sit down and do this podcast episode, I kept thinking like, oh, but it's kind of wrong for me to say this because I don't want the people who look up to me to be discouraged from ever reporting, or um, I don't want people to think that I'm weak because I feel this way. But then I caught myself and I was like, but isn't that the point of Tigris and isn't that the point of like what I want to stand for which is being super open and real about the emotions that I have right and then I started contextualizing it as 
if anybody else were to tell me I'm feeling a certain way, but I'm scared to say because I think it will make me sound weak, I would tell them, no, like, girl, you should not feel that way. Like your emotions are valid. And so before I sat down to do this podcast, I had this moment in the bathroom of like, okay, I'm feeling ready to speak about it. So we're going to dive into it. Anyway, so there are many instances in my life that I ha- wish I would have reported that I didn't. And then there are a few that I did report, but still struggle with the emotions of feeling guilty for doing so. And also feeling for disappointed in, in the lack of justice that ever happened. And I started to reflect on where the fear of reporting um, being hurt or harassed by someone else comes from. And I think it really starts on the playground or even on in like sibling uh, battles when you're fighting over toys or someone breaks a vase, you know, and that's the idea of like being a snitch or a tattletale. I think from the very beginning of my like elementary school career being on the playground when someone would like I got pantsed a few times where like some immature boy would come up and pull my pants down and I'd be sobbing and it was so embarrassing. It happened multiple times. And my mom still brings it up because we always we we both remember like the full name of this kid who pants me. And it was such a like a very concrete memory of mine in which I first experienced like true public embarrassment. And I remember when I told the teacher, I was teased then by him and all his friends for being a tattletale. And I think that that term tattletale, and then I think when you get to middle school or high school, then being called a snitch is something that came up a lot whenever you were trying to like stand up for yourself, right? You're at school, someone bullies you and you go tell on them and they're like, oh, bitch, you snitch, right? And I remember like being called a snitch and it was so embarrassing, but at the same time, looking back on it, I'm like, that's so awful, right? Someone was being mean to me or bullied me or they broke the rules in a way that I disagreed with. And shouldn't I be able to then go to the authority in this situation, which is the teacher and try to get some sort of authoritative backup on standing up for myself without being ridiculed by peers, right? And so I think that that is originally where a lot of my own personal fear of like backlash for standing up for myself or reporting to the system came from. So that's one part of it. And then I think that there's this other part of just like not being believed, right? You know, being bullied in middle school and then you report it and the they call the other, you know, potential bully into the office and they ask them and they deny all accusations. And then they're like, oh, well, there's no proof, right? There's a, this idea of like, nobody believes my truth, right? How do I convince someone that something truly happened to me. And then that, in addition to living in a rape culture, where I think in many ways, rape culture has been normalized and the system has been built by primarily cis heterosexual white men to protect cis heterosexual white men. And we live in a society that is also innocent until proven guilty, you know, which in many ways from a criminal justice perspective is really important to have this innocent until proven guilty, you know, method. But at the same time, when it comes to being a survivor and telling your story, it's hard to tell that story when there's no proof, right? When you don't have that scientific evidence or um, enough people in your corner who are standing beside you and um, supporting you in making these allegations, right? So I think that there are a few things that in addition to not wanting to be a tattletale and then being scared that nobody's going to believe you. And then three, in many situations when someone's sexually assaulted or sexually abused is 
um, it's often done by someone who's close to you, right? For me, it was my dad. And I didn't report for so long because I was scared that it would cause the divorce between my parents. I was scared that I would lose contact with my dad. I was scared that he would never forgive me or that he would hate me. And these are all fears that I still very much feel today. And I catch myself journaling about a lot because there is always going to be a part of me that is still this daddy's girl at heart. When I was younger, before my parents got divorced, um, even when my dad had his scary, angry outbursts and when he was touching me in ways that were inappropriate, I did always identify as like a quote unquote daddy's girl. And it was kind of a family um, joke that I was a daddy's girl, right? Like my youngest sister was much more so with my mom. And whenever we like had to choose or who I identified as like the fun parent, the good cop in the good cop, bad cop situation was my dad. And I think that for me, there is a part of me where I have these moments today where I feel really sad and like I miss my dad, even though I reflect on not feeling safe or pow- empowered in that position when I look back. So I think that there, that's something I've been thinking a lot about, especially as I am like trying to really reconcile even the idea that I'm never going to have a relationship with my dad again, which is still something that I think about quite a bit is like, will I ever reconcile? Will I ever have, um, you know, I read about Rihanna forgiving her dad after, you know, or forgiving Chris Brown or these things, you know, and having some sort of relationship or moving on. And like, I just can't imagine myself getting to that point, but it's something that I think about a lot. The first time I ever really reported someone for sexual harassment was freshman year of high school when I was the new kid at Catlin Gable. Catlin Gable is a school that is pre-K through 12th grade where the lifers, so kids who've been there since they were toddlers and are then in their teenage years, are super close to each other. They've grown up with each other. The class sizes are really small. And the idea that one amongst them is a perpetrator of sexual harassment, I think is a really scary thing to believe. It's also a school where a lot of the kids come from very wealthy backgrounds, where they have a lot of resources to stand up for the public image of the students. And when um, a student is accused of sexual assault, it's a really big deal. And it sometimes makes headlines, as it eventually did at my school as well. But when I was a freshman in high school, There was this boy who, you know, started Snapchatting me and asking me for nudes. And at one point, um, I remember after school, he kept pulling on my sleeves and kept pulling on me and like trying to get me to the bathroom to like make out with him. And I didn't actually report, but one of my friends did and reported that they saw me being pressured and that while nothing went down and I was eventually like, you know, taken out of that situation by this friend, that there was a lot of pressuring going on and a lot of touching that made me clearly uncomfortable. And when my friend told me that they had reported, my first instinct was to be really mad at them because I was really nervous about what it would do to my social life and status. And at the same time, that friend really reassured me that it was the right thing to do, that I deserved to feel safe. But I think being a new kid in school, it was terrifying, right? It was like, I'm coming into this school where... I'm clearly the outlier here and everyone has known each other since preschool. What are they going to think of me? And with the kind of assurances and the support from this friend, I decided to actually go in to talk to school administrators and tell what happened. And 
their answer to me was we need to call him in and to have a very serious conversation. Um, you know, there's not going to be a suspension because there's no proof of anything and nothing really happened, but he does need to be reprimanded. That's what was told to me. And so he was called in and he eventually did, I think, take a few days off of school or something, but it was, it wasn't mandated or asked by the school. I think it was like, it really flustered him, but it was truly awful because for a week at the, in my first semester at this new high school, people were so mad at me. And a lot of those like popular kids who eventually became really good friends of mine, I remember were teasing me about lying, were um, not letting me sit with them at lunch anymore. And I remember like being super confused and like I had to, they were asking me to admit to them, but also to the administrators that I lied or something because they were protective of this friend that they've had for a long time. And school administrators had told, told me like, we believe you. And we need to call him in to be reprimanded. And, but yet there were not going to be other consequences. It wasn't like a systemic thing that they were going to address. But I just remember like at every point of that experience of my friend reporting it, being mad at my friend first and foremost, then being upset um, because I was being like ousted by these other friends. And I kind of had to like repress any mention of it, not even think about it. And we never talked about it even in like my 10 years of even friendship that I've had with some of these high school friends in 10 years, have I ever talked about this? And I've been thinking about this a lot because to me, that was my first experience of like being sexually harassed, reporting it, or not even me reporting it, someone else reporting it. And from beginning to end, just feeling guilty, feeling guilty that like he was flustered, feeling scared of the consequences because people clearly did not believe me. And in no way, at any point of this were any of the peers in my class asking me about the truth, asking me, did it really happen? There were some girls who came forward and said, oh, I know that like he did that to me too. He pressures me so much. It's so gross how he like, you know, DMs on Snapchat, but like to the people who like kind of ran the social conversation at that high school, nobody asked me what actually really happened. Like there, that was not even a uh, even a thought in their mind from the very beginning. It was, it didn't happen, protect this dude. And we just never talked about it. So even when I was sexually assaulted, like not just coaxed, um, encouraged, but like truly hurt, like physically hurt, bruised, had to like, you know, had an injury that brought me to the hospital. And I was still in no way ever going to report. And it was never something that came across my mind. My therapist asked me if I wanted to report. The counselor asked if I wanted to report. But I like begged them that they didn't because I was so scarred by that experience freshman year that it would like oust me from friend groups. It would um, take me down. And the person who sexually assaulted me when I was a freshman in high school, or actually it was sophomore year, when I was a sophomore in high school, that person was a few years older than me and had a lot of like clout and status, um, being like a cool kid within school. And I felt like a nobody, nerdy, nobody in comparison to them. So like when that happened and when my mom asked me and like even brought me to the hospital, like asking me like where these injuries came from, like I did everything I could to lie about what happened, to lie about where these injuries came from. Um, I only had a few friends who knew about the situation. And I remember one of them, like I told four of my best girlfriends and one of them just said, oh, but my older sister is really good friends with him. And like, he would never do that. Like, like she, he would just never do that. Like he's such a like cuddly, like, I don't know. Like, I just can't imagine like maybe was it in misunderstanding while I had a freaking like bruise, you know, 
like crazy things like that where I think it was all of this conditioning of like not wanting to be a tattletale, convincing myself I wasn't going to be believed. And then in the small instances where I kind of opened up about the truth, not having someone behind me who was like, I stand behind you. We are going to get to the bottom of this and there will be consequences. At the same time, I am a 16 year old looking around me seeing instances of other peers of mine, girls who are sexually assaulted reporting it, nothing happening, or girls who uh, in the school district. I remember someone at like the rival school reported and the, the guy was expelled, but then she left the school and had to move because of all of the repercussions to her social life, right? So in my like worldview, or even like Monica Lewinsky, right? Like the, the person who, you know, it did come out, but she was marked as like, a slut by American media, right? Instances where the idea of reporting and having to prove your truth, like there was no encouragement around me that made me want to report, right? And I eventually was pushed to report about my dad when I was 17. asks, how would you love a chance to save money on your insurance? Of course you would. After all, who wouldn't love a great deal, right? And when it comes to great rates on insurance for all of the things in your life, GEICO can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners, condo, or renters coverage. You could save even more with a special discount when you bundle your coverages. Plus, add the easy-to-use GEICO mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more. And choosing to switch to GEICO becomes an easy choice. Switch to and see all the ways you could save with great rates and discounts. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com to get a rate quote or contact your local agent and get started seeing how much you could save. This show is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition. I think most of us agree that in a functioning democracy, the winner should be determined by the voters. Well, that almost didn't happen in 2020. Now, extremists are working to intimidate and replace nonpartisan election workers with quote-unquote yes-men who might reject election results. The only thing that will stop them is us. We partnered with the grassroots pro-democracy organization, Represent Us, to give you the tools you need to protect free and fair elections. Learn more and get involved. Visit represent.us pod to learn more. And it was out of my control. And there was, it wasn't something that I came forward to authorities and said, this is something I want to report. It was something that originally came out with my therapist and my sisters, right? And therapists and, you know, caregivers have a legal responsibility to report if their patient is in active danger or is going to cause harm to themselves or other people. And so again, like I remember, and I still get emotional thinking about this. I remember when I first went into therapy. I went into therapy when I was nine years old. It wasn't until I was 17 that I really came forward to my therapist about what was really happening with me and my dad. And a lot of that was because I was very aware and subconsciously knew or consciously knew that what my dad was doing was inappropriate. But I also knew that if I came out and said what was happening, I would lose my relationship with him. And again, that abuser of mine, my father, was someone that I deeply loved and someone that like, even if I hated him and had a lot of anger at him, he was my dad. And I couldn't imagine a life where I didn't have in my life anymore. But there was kind of this time when I was a senior in high school, I believe. Yeah, my senior year in the fall, 
where I was in a lot of therapy for PTSD and burning out. And my sister was in uh, a hospitalization, partial hospitalization for her eating disorder. So we were both going through this like intensive therapy work and through CBT, like, and actually being in therapy for sexually assaulted by that older guy in my school through that CBT work, we were doing a lot of work around like, where were the instances of like, why being hurt or abused or having my privacy invaded? Like, where is that familiarity coming from? And having that then being exposed as like my original relationship with my dad. So that comes out in therapy. And within 24 hours beyond my control, I lose contact with my dad. I get a message from my dad saying kind of like, are you fucking kidding me? What's happening? Uh, A few days later, I get a message from my grandmother being like, how could you lie about this? I get a message from my dad's new girlfriend saying, why are you lying? What is happening? And then we have no more contact. There's no goodbye. There's nothing. And through this whole process as uh, child protective services, people come in and everything. There's no like, Nadia, do you want to keep on going with the process? From there on, like it is completely out of my control. And I remember being in that situation being really nervous because I was like, if I tell you something, are you going to send my dad to jail? If I tell you something, what happens with this? Um, and you know, I was over at one point at, at the point where like, we really started interviewing with child protective services. And at one point, like my family actually traveled to New York to tell detectives and the, the NYPD about what was happening. Like I actually opted out of that. And I really regret doing so. I opted out a lot of, about a lot of those interviews because I had a lot of guilt of what was going to happen. Um, but at a certain point, like as I hear what he did to me and what he did to my sisters, there was a point where for me where it clicked, where I was like, if this happened to any other young girl, I would say that man needs to be in jail. So there was a part of me that I think was really seeking justice. At the same time, we never saw it. We did months and months of like reporting of interviews you know, doing the thing where you're like in an office and there's a social worker in front of you and then a social worker behind the two-way mirror. You're on video. They're recording you. You have to tell the same story over and over again to multiple people because they think you're lying from the very beginning. And we did all of these things. And at the end of the day, we got increased child support because they took a deeper view at his finances or something. But, and my mom already had sole custody. He lost visitation rights, but there was no other repercussion. And my dad is still out there. My dad's still in news headlines regularly. Um, The only place where he's mentioned by name is on my Wikipedia page that someone else wrote. Um, But I literally saw my dad in in an Instagram post hailed as like a leading artist in New York last week. And nobody knows that he's these three daughters that he lost contact with. Um, And he has two new kids who are a toddler and an infant. Um, And... I think this is where I have a lot of mixed emotions because as I said, while I do wish that there were repercussions and I wish that there was accountability, I think that at a certain point along my journey of being a survivor and having these instances of reporting and seeing what other survivors have gone through, there is no part of me that I think ended up having faith in the system of being a survivor and feeling like there were going to be repercussions But I do think that that's why the movements like Me Too movement are so important, because when you see people like Chanel Miller, right, who come forward and tell their stories um, uh, and the perpetrator does see consequences, that's really important. And I think that is emanated throughout the whole criminal justice system 
which I think a lot of us have lost faith in about reporting and what it means to be believed. And sexual assault, I think uniquely is something really challenging because there's not a lot of evidence in many ways, unless like within 24 hours you get a fucking rape kit. And, you know, I think when that happens to you, there's the motivation to like, I'm going to take myself into a hospital and like do multiple interviews and I can't change my clothes and I can't shower. Like that's terrifying. Um, and there have been instances of my own life where I was like very roughly, you know, raped in the past. And those are things that I haven't really talked about like two or three times in my life. I mean, especially in college, like when I drank for the first time, but like, I remember even when that happened to me, I was at a point in my life and like in my feminist journey where I was like publicly like everybody should report. I knew what a rape kit was and everything. But in that moment, like in the moments after that happens, no part of you is like, I'm going to march myself because I'm very consciously aware of what happened. Like when that happens to you, you're in survival mode. You're in survival mode of like, take care of myself, try kind of trying to convince yourself that it didn't happen trying to really come to awareness of like, did it really happen? You're dissociated, you're depersonalized, you're out of, like the whole system is built on demanding evidence in a way that is like inherently so insensitive and like hard to have. And in my situation with my dad, a lot of this sexual abuse happened when I was really young. So this was 10 years later. And so while we lost contact with him and we had restraining orders and everything, there weren't consequences. And a lot of the answers we got was because it was like, it slipped through the cracks and there wasn't um, current danger that we were in if we had restraining orders. And so there weren't consequences. Um, so after I graduated from high school, my, uh, my student advisor was, um, my student advisor was fired for grooming me. And that was also something that I did not have control over reporting. But my student advisor, who I met with every single day in my high school career, um, and I can say his name, Glenn Burnett, because uh, it was written about in press. Um, my mom found all these love letters that he had sent to me and like gifts, including lacy underwear from my four years of my high school career. And I had they had made me uncomfortable. So I just always throw them under my bed. And then when I left after graduation, my mom found them and then reported it to the school. And it was something that I was really scared about because this was a teacher of mine who had really supported me over my four years of high school. And I remember being really upset at her when she reported. But she what he was fired immediately. And that was honestly the first instance of like, oh, shit, like someone believed me. But in that instance, I had evidence because I had these fucking letters for him him, and I had emails and texts and everything of like hearts and pictures and gifts and um, and all of that. And um, I think for me, again, that was something where I didn't report it for four years. And even when I told like I told my high school boyfriend, hey, Glenn got me underwear. My boyfriend was like, oh, but he's just weird like that. Like he's socially awkward. Like everybody in the school knew he was socially awkward. But that came out publicly because a few years ago, like two years ago, my, there was a formal investigation and report into the history of teachers sexually harassing and grooming kids in my high school. And my high school is a very notable, exclusive, expensive private school. And there was a report, like a 20 page report that was done by like a law firm or some investigator about past examples of teachers having sexual relationships with students, like of all ages. And over the last several decades, um, some of the teachers who had had sexual relations with students, like now being fucking deceased. And I was anonymous story number three, I believe, where it's like about him 
and everything. And I did eventually come forward because he was named and everything with my story. And the Oregon newspaper, the state newspaper of Oregon interviewed me about it. And that was where I like finally had the confidence. I felt like I was being listened to. And this was two years ago where I came forward and I told the story and the piece still makes me so mad because nowhere did they ever call any of the people who came forward survivors. We were all victims who made allegations. There was no like reaffirmation that we were telling the truth. We were all victims. And in this state newspaper article, they interviewed Glenn. They interviewed the student advisor and named that none of it had been proven and that he was denying all allegations. And like, to me, that was one of the hardest hits because I felt like it was the first time I was like, I'm being believed and I'm being recognized and I've gotten through this and I'm strong and this is my truth and this is the truth that's being recognized. And it was really hurtful for me. And it took me like many days to get out of this depressive episode after seeing the newspaper article. And it's still out there, right? And it's still something that I think I grapple with. But that student advisor sent me a really long email like a year after he was fired that was basically like, I will never forgive you. And I'm, I lost my job. I lost all my friends. I hate my job now. I'm so depressed and I will never forgive you. You ruined my life. And I, when I get really depressed, even today, I look at that email. Like I still have it in my Gmail and I still look at it and I read through it. And I just feel guilt. And my mom has to remind me that it has to, I have to recognize that it's gaslighting and I have to recognize that I did everything right that I should have and I had every right to report and that I should have felt empowered to report. But like, this is me coming forward to you all through Tigris and being unapologetically honest, which is as much as I believe in reporting and I believe everyone should report. And I always tell survivors like, I believe you, I see you. Don't feel guilty because you're right in this. This is your truth when it comes down to it and I like reflect on like what this kind of like shame feeling that I have about the instances in which I've tried to report or have reported the leading emotion that I feel is guilt and the leading emotion I feel is feeling bad. And like, I Google stalk my dad all the fucking time. I Google stalk him all the time. And like, especially because like, I will see his like art and creations and business around New York city. Like I will see them out and he still gets recognition. I will Google him. And when I Google him and I see he looks older, like he did not have white hair when I knew him. He did not look and have these wrinkles he does now when I knew him. He's not even 50 years old. He, my parents had me when I was very young. And like when I see that, I feel guilt. Like I feel like he looks sad. I feel so bad. Of course, there's this part of me that feels like really angry. I'm like, how the fuck can he get recognition? How has there been no consequences? Like who gives him the audacity to have kids and who gives his employees who knew me and my sisters to still post pictures with him calling him the best dad ever, even though they knew me and my sisters, they see what we post. Like there is this part of me that's so angry and upset. And there's this part of me that like, is like, he does, does not deserve this. Like he needs to be canceled. If anyone needs to be canceled, he needs to be canceled. But there's a part of me where like, even now, like I cannot bring myself to say his name. And it's not because I don't, I, I want that attention to go on him. It's like, there's a part of me that's genuinely still watching out for him that still does not want him to have that livelihood taken away. There's a part of me that even though that my paternal grandmother, my dad's mom didn't stand up for me and never reached out or anything. There's a part of me that genuinely misses her. And like, I live in Brooklyn now and I recognize that my dad lives a few miles away. And like, that's really scary for me. But I do think that there's 
a part of me and what I'm still working through in therapy is like, I have this guilt over like having that, um, that daddy's girl, like trying to protect him feeling. And I think it's something that I'm still very much needing to work through, but I'm choosing to share it with all of you because I feel like I get asked all the time, like whenever I talk about being a survivor online, one of the first few questions that I get is, did you report? Why didn't you report? Um, And even haters who like don't believe me, they're like, well, if you didn't report, did it really happen? Right. And I wanted to share this with all of you because I feel like this is the narrative that like I want to be honest with, which is here's why I didn't report. It's a lot of societal conditioning, which I think highlights the need for things like the Me Too movement and highlights the need for movements that say we believe survivors, we see you and what you say is the truth. Right. Without question. And I do think that in the criminal justice system, like innocent until proven guilty is very needed because it does prevent a lot of like racial profiling things from happening. But at the same time, I think that like when it comes to survivors, there is this balance we have to take when we impose that innocent until proven guilty, like needing hard evidence argument, because it can be really hurtful and it causes a lot of survivors to feel silenced. And then I think that also like, I wanted to share this with all of you in case there are other survivors out there. And I know there are other survivors who have reported and feel disappointed in the system for not protecting them, who feel disappointed in the system for not giving the reparations or um, repercussions to their abusers when they have reported. And this is also to my survivors who like have reported and like feel guilty and like feel terrified of the consequences. Like, I still, one of the recurring nightmares I have today is like that my dad comes and murders me and it's very violent. It's a very violent dream and the dream changes a lot. But like there is a part of me that has this like fear of his anger, right? Because I've seen my dad angry a lot. But I think that like this is my honest feeling and I'm really nervous about how this episode is going to be received because again, like I am not telling you any of this because I'm trying to discourage anyone from reporting. But I'm saying like, these are the emotions that held me back from reporting. As I've shown in the many examples where I have gotten into a reporting experience, none of it was because I came forward on my own. It was a friend. It was a mom. There were points when I was going to report and I had a friend or the person who abused me convinced me not to. So like, I still feel like I have a lot of strengthening to do. Looking back, I wish I was stronger. I wish I had the confidence and the community around me to say, we believe you. I wish I had the social awareness that I do now of the importance of reporting. Reporting is so important because it prevents other people from being hurt and it teaches them a lesson. Even that teacher who groomed me, when I came forward and told my story, three other students who were before me messaged me on Facebook and said that they went through the same thing. Three. And like, even in that freshman year instance, right, when... I reported or like my friend reported and I felt so bad. Multiple other girls in my year were relating to that experience. Reporting is really important because it's needed to one, teach lessons, hold people accountable and protect you. And you deserve that. And I want to tell my survivors out there, like I strongly urge you to report and I want you to report and I want to support you in reporting. And I also give you a big virtual hug because I know that shit's really fucking scary. And I know it's really hard to still have faith in a system for do, you know, carrying out justice in that way. 
And it's just something really hard to grapple with. And reporting isn't a one and done thing. You report and um, actually the detective who worked on the case with my teacher who groomed me was the same detective who actually passed on our case to the New York City Police Department. And I remember when I caught up with him three years later, he said, I remember your case. I said, what happened to that case? And he said, it slipped through the cracks in New York. And my case, along with millions of others in New York City, is another one of the child abuse cases that slipped through the cracks. And you can read all about it. Like, this is a huge issue within policy in New York. Anyways, I could talk about this forever. And clearly, like, I've done a lot of thinking about this. And again, this is an episode I've been wanting to do for a while. I feel like I've just been needing to do the right vocabulary, like find the right vocabulary to talk about it. And it's something I've been working through in therapy to have the vocabulary and feel like I could talk about this in a way where I'm not going to fucking burst out crying and have a panic attack. And I'm feeling okay now. And I actually feel like a whole weight was lifted off my shoulders. So I want to end by saying, I love all my survivors out there. We're so fucking strong. We are surviving. It's hard, but we're surviving. We are survivors. I believe you and I see you. I hope you report and I hope you have communities around you who believe you. And I love all of you so much. And um, I know this can bring up a lot of emotions. So like, again, DM me. I love hearing all of your feedback and everything. And with that, I will talk to you later. Bye, y'all. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.